A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 357, Vipers! As an independent podcaster, I know that these days history podcasts supported by networks and other organisations now dominate the upper echelons of the most popular history podcasts. In many ways, this is a great thing, since the quality and range of history podcasts is now absolutely fantastic. But it does make it so hard for small independents to get themselves noticed among the two million podcasts jostling for attention, of which now so many have marketing budgets attached to support them. So, you may find the odd, short read by small independent podcasters introducing their podcast for a while. They will be less than a minute of your time. I hope you will find something of interest and bear with me. I get no sponsorship for these. It is a standard interpretation of the prorogation of the 1628 Parliament that Charles did it because he saw no prospect of success, but also to save the skin of his favourite Buckingham. Now, there is an argument against that in the sense that Buckingham himself was confident that he could refute the charges. But hey, George wasn't a man who lacked self-confidence, it has to be said, and that doesn't mean he was right. And Charles was not the man to have his noble bezzy mate hounded by hoi polloi. Whether or not George was Charles's main concern, it appears that once Parliament was gone, the emotion that gripped the young king and his jimmies at night was one of deep regret. Regret that had been too much Mr Nice Guy, worn velvet gloves, not iron gauntlets. Now, obviously, you will know there is no problem that cannot be solved by a Boston box, a two-by-two grid. If we have Calvinism and accommodation towards Parliament, top and right of the grid, and absolutism and Arminianism, bottom and left, he felt he'd gone way too far top right. So, once Parliament had left, he took action and travelled bottom left. Now look, this may be incomprehensible for you, so I have put a Boston box on the website. All this verbiage is me just shedding the pain of business life past. So in essence, all I'm saying is that accommodating Parliament and Calvinists was no longer a priority for Charles. First off, that petition of right worried him. So he cancelled and pulped the printing of the thing and got Attorney General Heath to produce instead a version which gave his first answer, the one not acceptable to Parliament, the one saying he'd do things according to laws and customs, which of course he could interpret as he saw fit, and then added a bunch of qualifications anyway. I mean, this is most outrageous. Words fail me. What kind of tin pot monarchy is this, where decisions, jointly and publicly made, get rewritten? And there's more. There is a suggestion that he actually had the statute number on the statute roll of the petition of right erased with a pumice stone so it couldn't be identified and verified in future. This is a matter of some debate, I have to say, between historians, and it is difficult to believe. I mean, seriously, that would be the actions of a tin-pot dictator. I suspect Charles's conscience wouldn't have allowed it, but I could be wrong. 
So look, that took him firmly out of the parliamentary accommodation box. Now for the Calvinist one. In July, Lord was made Bishop of London. Neil was promoted to Winchester, Howson to Oxford. George Montaigne was made Archbishop of York. And then Harsnet replaced him when he died rather too quickly. White took Norwich, Buckeridge, Ely. Most of these names mean nothing to you, I appreciate. The common factor, though, in all of these appointments, all of them were Arminians. And then the pièce de résistance, the cherry on the top, the last straw, the final countdown, the blow of the proverbial hammer, the fall of the sword of Damocles. Richard Montague, you know, that fellow at the centre of the storm whose writings have caused so much upset amongst Charles's MPs, he was made Bishop of Chichester. So much for balance and listening to the will of the people, then game, set and match to Arminians. With Abbott rusticated, the roost that was the church hierarchy was ruled by a pigeon of the most Arminian plumage. Buckingham, meanwhile, was continuing to busy about spending the subsidies that had been granted. Feelers about peace were still out to Spain, but the diplomatic situation had shifted again, as European diplomatic situations are wont to do. They had now blown up a brand shiny new war, the War of the Mantuan Succession. A proxy war, with France and Spain promoting the cause of alternative candidates, a sort of 17th century North and South Korea thing. So, the France-Spain love-in was now once again a love-out, and it could have been that the war against France could be reconsidered, but Charles saw his commitment to La Rochelle as a matter of honour, and Buckingham was equally afraid of the fallout from the general public if the Protestants at La Rochelle were abandoned, and so preparations for war continued. Not that this helped one jot with his reputation with the masses, for a large section of them, really quite unfairly, Buckingham was a closet Spaniard and a closet Catholic. There were death threats. After an astrologer called Dr Lamb was beaten to death by a suspicious mob, a libel appeared. Let Charles and George do what they can. The Duke shall die like Dr Lamb. Plus a change, eh? Buckingham tackled the preparations at Portsmouth to prepare the fleet with his customary energy, in person. His quarters were at the Greyhound Inn, where also were to be found Soubise and other leading Rochelois. Kate Villiers, Countess Buckingham to you and me, was there too, grabbing a few moments with her hub before he went away on his foreign business trip. On the 17th of August, 1628, there was an ugly incident. As Buckingham set off to report in to the king, several hundred sailors surrounded the coach, demanding their pay. One tried to drag Buckingham from the coach bodily, but Superbuck, nothing daunted, leapt from the coach, grabbed the man by the scruff of the neck, shouted something probably along the lines of, you horrible little man, and hauled him off to the greyhound to be clapped in irons. Damn your eyes! That's the way to deal with these bounders, eh? George didn't lack for chutzpah you have to admit. A few days later, he was back and preparations for the great campaign proceeded apace. On the 22nd, the king visited again and they parted with such sweet sorrow as you do. And the following morning, fake news arrived that La Rochelle had been relieved. Well, hurrah for that. Buckingham literally danced for joy. Cut a little jig, he did. 
He had a quick breakfast, preparing to rush off to tell Charles, Charles the glad tidings, and out into the lobby he went. Now, presumably you, like me, have hung around great noblemen and women, as you do, hoping for a bit of patronage to fall your way, so you'll easily be able to imagine the scene. Bustle, hustle, crowded room, people trying to catch the great man's eye. One of Buckingham's colonels was the first to manage that, one Thomas Freyer, who was surrounded by army men, one a veteran of Ireland and a former captain at the disaster at the Ile de Ray. A consultation with Freyer took place. When the matter was sorted, Buckingham, of course, bowed courteously and stood. Freyer then bowed in his turn, and as he leant over, the captain behind him thrust his arm over Freyer's shoulder. There was a flash of steel, and suddenly there was blood on the Duke's left breast, and a knife there. Murder! Treason! Buckingham pulled out the knife from his chest and cried, Villain! and in typical fashion tried to pull his sword from its scabbard, setting off to take revenge on the killer. But after no more than a few steps into the horrified crowd, he stumbled, and he stopped, and fell dreadfully silent, held up only by the press of people around him. He was taken off and laid out on a table, but it was too late. Buckingham was dead, blood running from his mouth and Kate appeared above the stairs to see what all the noise was about and gazed down at her husband, once so full of life and passion, and now a corpse. The captain, whose name was Tom Felton, mooched off to the kitchens, unremarked as the killer, and he didn't seem too anxious to escape, though it seems he could have easily done so. Everyone put two and two together and came up, of course, with Frenchmen and started yelling, Frenchmen! Felton misheard, and thought they were crying for him. And so helpfully, he stepped forward and introduced himself, saying, I'm the man. A few hotheads wanted to run him through there and then, damn your eyes. But he was instead taken to the magistrates. In his hat was found a statement. That man is cowardly, base, and deserveth not the name of a gentleman or soldier that is not willing to sacrifice his life for the honour of his God, his king and his country. Let no man commend me for doing of it, but rather discommend themselves as the cause of it. For if God had not taken away our hearts for our sins, he would not have gone so long unpunished. Honestly, I'm not 100% sure what he's going on about, but I think he's saying Buckers should have died rather than return a failure from the Ile de Ray. Charles, meanwhile, was a few miles away at a place called Southwark House. He was at a service when Edward Hyde, later Earl of Clarendon, saw a messenger come in, make for the king, and whisper in his ear. Clarendon recorded the scene that Charles continued unmoved and without the least change in his countenance till prayers were ended when he suddenly departed to his chamber and threw himself upon his bed, lamenting with much passion and with abundance of tears the loss he had of an excellent servant and the horrid manner in which he had been deprived of him. And he continued in this melancholic discomposure of mind for many days. Felton's trial took place on the 27th of November. He came to the conclusion of his own accord that what he had done was inspired not by God, but by the devil. It was abhorrent, 
I have much dishonoured God in it. He pleaded guilty, was condemned and hanged on the 29th of November. Buckingham had been buried on the 18th of September. His body was laid in the Henry VII Chapel at Westminster Abbey and in 1634 Kate Buckingham had a grand memorial done which also made it very clear that in her humble opinion or actually not too humble opinion her husband had been badly misjudged by the people. Some members of the great English public, though, did not come to such a realisation. The news of Buckingham's death was greeted by many with unrestrained joy, which is a little rude. Toasts to Felton were drunk all over the country. Sermons preached about the good news. Felton was lauded as a Protestant hero who had saved the country from the crypto-Catholic Buckingham. Libels circulated. Here lies lechery, treachery, pride. The nature of the English public's response would affect Charles very deeply indeed and would probably have consequences. Well, there goes Buckingham in tragic circumstances. I was left understanding that Buckingham was a good deal more than a time-serving glory and power-seeking courtier. He had verve, style, charisma and also energy and a determination to succeed. I fully believe his devotion to both James and Charles was real and heartfelt. He had far too much testosterone than was wise for a country, I suspect. I haven't gone into the rumours of his various affairs or given credence to the idea that he really tried to get it on with the Queen of France, but these things could be true. I could have sexed things up a lot, mea culpa. But the boring stuff, the vastness of the wealth he acquired and the way he feathered the nests of his family to the detriment of policy in Ireland in particular is more than a bit gross. Far more than the likes of Cecily even. He was, like Charles, very concerned that his clients should do him service rather than provide advice as equals. He was ruthless in removing enemies like Bacon. His dominance probably limited the advice and options available to both James and Charles, though I suppose this last one's not really Buckingham's fault, but James and Charles's. And you can take it too far, I think, when some historians say this blocked off all advice from the king. It seems to me there were always factions like Pembroke's that still managed to influence events despite Buckingham's presence. In the end, poor old Buckingham committed the worst crime of all. He was unlucky. Two days earlier and Saint Martin would have fallen. Two days earlier and the fortress of Saint Martin would have fallen. Two days more and Wimbledon might have caught the treasure fleet. A few days more and resupply would have arrived at Ray. Close. So close. It is tempting to date the start of the next phase of Charles's reign, the personal rule where he resolved to manage without Parliament, from the date of the death of Buckingham. But it's not quite that simple. In fact, Others have seen this as the last opportunity for Charles and his parliaments to build a better, closer working relationship. And Dorchester reported that Charles was indeed resolved not to discharge of himself so much of affairs on one man, but to take main direction to himself. There was a realigning of roles within the Privy Council, a cabinet reshuffle, you might say. Now, in one sense, that was bad for a harmonious working relationship with Parliament because the biggest winner 
was one Richard Weston, who became the Lord Treasurer. Now, Weston had been close to Buckingham. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And would be close to Lord also. He was a very suspicious man as far as Parliament was concerned. His advice on the council was most uncompromising as regards dealing with them. He favoured adopting the threatened new council's approach and making peace with Catholic Spain. And in this, he formed something of a partnership with the Earl of Arundel and Francis Cottingham. Interestingly, and here's a thing for the future, Weston also managed to recruit an old enemy to turn his coat and climb aboard the new team of the king. I speak of one Thomas Wentworth, Yorkshireman. As you will remember, Wentworth had been such a troublemaker in Parliament that he'd been targeted for exclusion from the 1626 Parliament and pricked out, as the phrase went. But like Weston, he favoured peace with Spain, and so he was blandishable, open to the arts of blandish. In July, he was made a baron, and in December, a viscount and president of the Council of the North. Thomas Wentworth had been recruited. He had been turned. There would, for him in particular, and indeed for Ireland, be consequences. But while Weston and the likes of Lord were now most powerful within the Privy Council, the older Patriot Party still retained a lot of influence under the likes of Pembroke. People began to talk openly of a return to the good old days of Elizabeth, where multiple individuals and temporary groups and alliances formed over specific issues and where they all had access to the royal lug. And we get very briefly to actually mention a couple of women here, because one of the routes to, to the lug royal was Henrietta Maria. And when Buckingham shuffled off the stage, the relationship between king and queen underwent a very obvious transformation. A new closeness in their relationship impressed absolutely everyone. Lucy Carlyle wrote that she could not wish to find a happier couple. There was no arguing about the rain anymore. When Henrietta Maria caught a fever, Charles was constantly by her side. By the way, I can't do this two names thing anymore. It's a pain in the neck to write it down all the time. So I'm told that Charles said that she should be called Queen Mary, but she hated that and she actually called herself Henrietta R. So, from now on, Henrietta it is, just so as you know who I'm talking about. At this time, their first child was conceived. Horribly enough, the following May, Henrietta would miscarry as the baby was being born feet first. While things were still in doubt, the doctors asked Charles what they should do, and Charles told them to save Henrietta, even if it meant they could have no more children. I am not 100% confident that Henry VIII would have said that. Answers on a postcard. Anyway, Henrietta's growing influence meant that like many queens in history, she was a route to the king, a possible intermediary in disputes, an intercessor, a source of influence 
and of information. Which leads me to introduce Lucy Carlyle again, the daughter of Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. In 1617, she married one James Hay, who became Earl of Carlisle in 1622 and was himself an influential courtier and diplomat. Lucy Carlyle, then, was a wildly conspicuous figure at Charles's court. She had wit, intelligence, beauty, charisma and prepared to use all of her talents to gain influence for herself and her husband. People wrote verses in her praise. She was rumoured during her life to have had affairs with people as diverse as Buckingham, Wentworth and Pym. At this stage, she and her husband decided that Lucy should cultivate the Queen as a way of gathering influence. And she managed to do so, although her biographer Roy Schreiber reckoned that Henrietta and Lucy were not closely aligned in their tastes. Henrietta loved the visual and dramatic arts like the mask. Carlyle was much more about wit and conversation, symposia, words. But nonetheless, Lucy managed to gain the Queen's favour and she deployed her influence in support of her husband's desire as a member of the Patriot Party to avoid peace with Spain against the wishes of the Western Party. Though embarrassing as it happens, unknown to her, Charles then sent her husband on a secret diplomatic mission to Spain to discuss peace. So, a sudden shift was required, and ineluctable principle was discovered to actually be quite luctable. Anyway, Lucy Carlyle was a player. Her tool was the salon, where influential courtiers and politicians could come and shine, but also meet in corners, hear the gossip and rumour, make alliances away from the strict confines of the court. And Lucy Carlyle was there at the heart of it. So, there was certainly a problem that needed to be dealt with, whether you chose to tackle it with or without Parliament. The failure to vote tonnage and poundage at Parliament led some merchants to refuse to pay customs dues, and there was all manner of conflagration about that, with Charles joining John Roll, a Levant merchant and MP, into prison, along with many others. Meanwhile, Robert Bertie, Lord Lindsay, had been poked and prodded into leading Buckingham's fleet to La Rochelle, which turned out to be the last word in miserable failure. In fact, Lindsay hardly even tried. It turned out to be a real snowflake and went back instead of draining the fens and throwing the people off their lands, the proper occupation for a nobleman. If another attempt on La Rochelle was to be tried, more money would be needed. Despite the influence of Weston, the efforts of Pembroke and his patriots and moderates began to raise the definite possibility of another throw of the dice between King and Parliament. The failure of Lindsay's flotilla rather helped, actually, although Soubise and the Rochelle were hardly pleased with it, because in autumn, realising there was little prospect now of raising the siege, and with the city a shadow of its former self, La Rochelle finally surrendered to their king. So, the legs that carried the war against France were removed, not a single leg to stand on, so what was all the point? Surely the only idea which retained its legs was to back restoring Elizabeth Stuart to the Palatinate in alliance with France against the Habsburgs. Those legs were made to look even more necessary because the other legs to develop that strategy, the Danes, were now looking so thin and pasty, their knees so wobbly as being in dire need of support. I think I shall drop the leg metaphor now as having outlived its usefulness. But the business of the 1628 Parliament left outstanding was of course the customs dues and that was the only real source of revenue big enough to strengthen the Danish legs in defence of Protestantism. 
Long-term, right to customs, tonnage and poundage had not yet been voted by Parliament. Now Charles also seemed to be persuadable once more to consider paying the price required for such parliamentary support. That price being religion. Because as sure as eggs is eggs, Arminianism was going to come up. But a new deal seemed to be in the offing. Dorset excitedly reported that Charles seemed very malleable for a change. So capable of good counsel, so patient to hear truth, so loving justice, so discerning right, and so zealously affecting the good of his people. Anyway, to give the opportunity practical teeth, Charles invited his councillors to supper on the 27th of November to prepare for Parliament. And after the cheese and port, or whatever you ended supper with those days, he proposed to promise Parliament to turn out all papists from office and to refer the teachings of all Arminians to the bishops for review against the 39 articles. He proposed to set up a council committee composed of lords and commons. Parliament, only prorogued in June of course, was set to be recalled after they had deliberated in January 1629 and in return he would expect Parliament to grant customs dues for his full reign. Now this was a significant move. Here was Charles actually encouraging Parliament to discuss grievances without being forced to do so down a dark alley and having a knife pressed to his windpipe. There was much toing and there was much froing. In the fro's there were victories for the Arminians, in the twos for the Calvinistas. It was dourly noted that referring the sermons of Arminians for review to the bishops probably wouldn't get very far since all the bishops were Arminian anyway. And instead the Calvinists wanted the canons of Dort adopted into the 39 Articles, those being the canons adopted in the Netherlands by the Reformed Church. On the other hand, there was a win for the Calvinists, because Richard Montague was dumped by Lord, and as a result, rather humiliatingly and publicly repudiated Arminianism in a statement to the Archbishop Abbott. In the secular arena, the Privy Council planned a deal with the Commons to answer their concern about the petition of right and the prosecution of merchants who had refused to pay customs dues because they'd not been approved by Parliament. So look, it's complicated, but here essentially was the New Deal to which Charles appeared to be prepared to play. A repositioning of Calvinism at the heart of the religious settlement and reassurances that the king would play fair in the future by the petition of right and not duck, not weave and not backslide. Parliament opened in January, therefore, in an atmosphere of hope among the Privy Council. Surely they had a workable accommodation here. The 1628 Parliament had delivered subsidies. Now it would deliver customs dues in 1629 and harmony would be re-established. Well, unfortunately, it didn't turn out quite like that. And the reason for the problems appear this time to lie at least as much with the intransigence of the House of Commons as with the king. Essentially, two factions emerged in the Commons. Last week I read a pronouncement from William Earle that linked the matter of religion with that of constitutional secular politics. Calvinism and a concern for the liberties of Parliament appear to coalesce. You might note that I do not use Calvinism or constitutional radicalism as synonymous with Puritanism. Not yet, if ever, will I do so. The two come together for the majority of MPs, that's Calvinism and Parliamentary Liberties. 
because Arminians were as hot for the rights of the king as they were hot for their theology. It's not yet a matter of establishing a new, perfect, Puritan city on a hill. It's about defending a Calvinist view of the Elizabethan settlement of old. On that, just to digress for a moment, it's always slightly odd to hear parliamentarians or Puritans described routinely as religious zealots. Because the Arminians, who will be primarily ranged on the royalist side, were every bit as zealous as Puritans. It was basically in the water of Christendom still. Anyway, at one end of the MPs, John Pym and Nathaniel Rich were primarily concerned with religion. The demands of their committee went well beyond what Charles would ever agree to. It demanded the condemnation of those named recently by Charles as being promoted to bishops, specifically naming Neil and Lord as contrary to orthodox religion. Charles was outraged. I might mention at this point, as a bit of a digression by the way, that there were two representatives from the fair borough of Huntingdon at the 1629 Parliament, as per normal of course. The primary candidate of the two was a scion of the leading family in the area whose family would produce the Earls of Manchester, the prominent commanders of the parliamentary army in the future conflict. And there was another, rather down-at-the-heels member of the area, in no more than the top 20 householders in the borough, who wibbled along that line between very minor gentry indeed and a yeoman farmer. His name was Oliver Cromwell. It's generally thought that Cromwell's religious views and move towards independency would come later, but it is worth noting that his first speech in Parliament was in opposition to the Arminian Richard Neal. So he's already in the Calvinist camp and worried about Arminians. He had clearly not yet started swimming, however, since his speech sank like a stone. Another group in Parliament, more interested in the secular side of all these arguments, was led by John Eliot and John Selden, and they focused very much on the petition of right. It has to be said that Charles had been surprisingly emollient. So far, credit where credit is due, promising to give a commitment to abide by the petition in the future and to collect customs only after the Commons had voted their grant. Let us not be jealous of one another's actions, so that the session might end in a perfect good understanding between us, he said, clearly an attempt at least to reach compromise. But this was not sufficient for Elliot and Selden. They wanted the petition to be sealed and signed in blood. There must be vengeance visited upon the government for prosecuting those merchants who had bravely refused to pay customs dues since 1628, citing for justification that Parliament had not yet made the official grant to the King and therefore their levying was tyranny. The MPs John Elliot and John Selden focused on the case of the said aforementioned Thomas Roll because he was an MP as well as merchant. Selden and Pym's problem was that to win their battle required, or seemed to require, he climbed down specifically by the king, which was unlikely. So, again to give credit where it's due, they proposed a face-saving formula. What they proposed to do was to prosecute the government officials who had collected the customs dues in 1628 as individuals, on the implicit basis that they had acted on their own initiative, not on the king's. It's a variant of the evil councillor's defence. It was the evil councillor's what did it, Gov, not our lovely king. Now look, 
it would have been thoroughly sensible for the king to accept such a deal in a real politique kind of way. Some customs officials would suffer for it, but what the hell, this is the government of the country we're talking about here. But here we run up against Charles's not unattractive acute sense of honour again, or hideous inflexibility if you prefer that approach. He could not do such a thing, throw his customs officials to the wolves, just for the sake of hundreds of thousands of pounds every year and constitutional peace. So, on the 23rd of February, he insisted Secretary John Cook make a statement on his behalf to the House. What these men did, they did by his express command, or by the council board, he being there in person or directing. This cannot be divided from his own act, and there be no proceeding against them as highly concerning his honour. Charles was convinced that if he threw his officers to the wolves, his authority would be irreparably damaged. It was too much compromise for him to stomach. If he did so, he said, none would ever obey him again. He probably recognised that despite the face-saving formula, Elliot and Selden fully realised that this was a test case, an arm wrestle. Let it not be thought Parliament were all sweetness and light. By this stage... Elliot and Selden had anyway decided that Charles had effectively decided not to deal and that he was now planning to dissolve Parliament and not keep on talking. They were encouraged in this by a command from Charles on the 25th of February 1629 to adjourn Parliament until the 10th of March. So, they planned a protest should further adjournment be proposed. Now, in this belief, it could well be they were deceived. The Venetian ambassador, for example reported home at this time that the moderates on the Privy Council were still in command of the boat and that the King did not intend to dissolve Parliament. But Elliot and Selden believed otherwise and they were ready. So, when the Speaker John Finch announced in Parliament on the 2nd of March that Parliament was to be adjourned until the 10th of March, there was an absolutely unprecedented uproar. It is one of the set pieces of the revolution, ladies and gentlemen, the sort of event that Victorian artists like to paint. As Finch finished his announcement, that stalwart of English liberty, John Eliot, stood. He furiously and passionately declaimed that the intentions and suggestions of the commons must have been misrepresented to the king, that the adjournment should not take place until a declaration he had prepared should be read out and adopted by the House. With an impressive sense of theatre, he threw the papers of his declaration to the floor. An MP, Sir William Fleetwood, rushed forward to pick them up and carry them to the Speaker's chair to be read. Fleetwood is an interesting chap, one of three brothers, one a baron in Sweden fighting for Gustavus, Adolphus and Uxensterner, another Charles, who would be a parliamentary general and one of the major generals, and he himself, William, who would withdraw from the Civil War, a family divided. Anyway, Finch, the Speaker, knew when he was being stitched up. Parliament had been adjourned, there was no business to be done here now, so rather than take the declaration and read it, he hurriedly made to stand up, lift up his robes and head for the door. But before he could vacate his chair, two of Elliot's allies, Denzel Hollows, Benjamin Valentine, came forward, plucked him back by force, and held him in his chair, 
This was an outrage. Hands had been laid on the speaker. Pandemonium ensued. Scenes as wild as the school dinner queue. Over the next two hours, the House debated in defiance of both the King and his supporters in the House. The King sent increasingly frantic messages for them to disperse, carried by his sergeant of arms responsible for maintaining security in the Houses, a position known as the Gentleman Usher of the Black Rod, a man called James Maxwell. He hammered on the door, and they heard him knocking, but he couldn't come in, because another MP, Miles Hobart, had locked the door and pocketed the key. The Venetian ambassador reported that the Commons were by no means of one mind. Some of the more royalist MPs objected horribly to all this non-standard behaviour. Punches were thrown by the radicals and the royalists threatened to draw their swords on them. All most unparliamentary. But Elliot would have his way and he spoke. Mr Speaker, there was never the like of this done in this House. It is the fundamental liberty of this House that we have ever used to adjourn ourselves. He went on to protest. There hath been some misrepresentation of the course of our proceedings to His Majesty. It may be he hath been informed that we have encroached too far upon the power of his sovereignty, but I hope we shall in all things be ever ready to obey him as the highest under God. Then he went on to his carefully prepared and quite extraordinary protestations. Three of them. I mean, listen to this. Here we go, in full. One, whosoever shall bring in innovation of religion, or by favour or countenance, seek to extend or introduce popery or Arminianism, or any other opinion disagreeing from the true and orthodox church, shall be reputed a capital enemy to this kingdom, and commonwealth. 2. Whosoever shall counsel or advise the taking and levying of the subsidies of tonnage and poundage not being granted by Parliament, or shall be an actor or instrument therein, shall be likewise reputed an innovator in the government and a capital enemy to the kingdom and commonwealth. 3. If any merchant or person whatsoever shall voluntarily yield or pay the said subsidies of tonnage and poundage not being granted by Parliament, he shall likewise be reputed a betrayer of the liberties of England and an enemy to the same. No formal controlled vote was taken or possible, but many of the MPs shouted their approval as if it had and then the Parliament voted its own adjournment, the Civil War equivalent of Yarboo sucks to Black Rod. Now, a bit like Flashman, I need to hold the buttocks of your understanding to the toasting fire of constitutional history. Let's take a couple of lines. Shall be reputed a capital enemy to this kingdom and commonwealth. Be reputed a betrayer of the liberty of England and an enemy to the same. What is being proposed here is pretty much the anteroom to the events of 1642 and 1649. Parliament is declaring such actions to be defined as treason, and treason which could be visited on a subject carrying out the King's express command. By it, by golly, blow me down and knees up, Mother Brown. This is radical. Treason against the state. The state as something separate to the king. Well, it won't surprise you to learn that Charles immediately ordered Parliament dissolved rather than just prorogued. 
On March the 10th, he told the House of Lords that it wasn't their fault, nor was it the fault of the majority of MPs who were as dutiful subjects as any in the world. No, it was a group of troublemakers, some few vipers that did cast the mist of undutifulness over most of their eyes. Now there's a thing. Charles was not finished yet. The venom of the vipers would provoke him to administer further serum to his kingdom. About which we will find out next week. And Charles makes a series of resolutions that will set his feet and the feet of his subjects on a new path. Until that time, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Thank you for your comments and reviews. I am eternally grateful. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>